I started to think about desire for higher goods, like as high as you could go. And I did that partly because the impression is that somehow there are higher goods and something about our relation to these higher goods is what orders or organizes things down below. <laughs> things like choice of career, decision about families, um, political decisions, various other things. And so there's something, so it was sort of like, what exactly is the longing for higher goods? I thought, and realized I did not know what to say about it exactly. So, I thought, I know I'll go to a really interesting neo-Aristotelian who wrote a whole book on that topic. So, I've been living in the phenomenology disgustus for months. Hegel, um, Georg, <laughs> Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Um, because that book is his tracing out of a path of desire for higher good. And it's um, a great read. It's completely mesmerizing. Okay. And one of the things about Hegel on this topic is that he holds all of the sort of force and power that clings to an English language term like desire, something that is fugitive if you're thinking about propositional attitudes or something, but not, not so much if your life is being turned upside down by the sense that, no, no, maybe that's the right one over there. She seems to like me. Okay. Um, so the term, even in English, sort of suggests something of romance, longing, movement, imagination, craving, a sense of being drawn into or toward something that is at least a little mysterious, even when that desire is, appears to be attaching to something fairly determinate and existing like an object that's actually in the world, a pastry or a person. I think there has to be something a bit mysterious about desire for us. Um, and if Hegel was right, the begirda, desire, is toward what the desiring creature does not have where the not having is experienced as lacking and where the desiring creature all on its own can't entirely characterize the object that might in fact address or satisfy the longing. In his monumental text devoted to tracing out the work of desire in minded organisms, I'm just going to say desire because I'm so nervous about giving a paper on a topic I've never spoken about before. Um, but you're getting it new. Desire in human activity reaches out not just toward what a human being lacks, but toward what a human being 
could not possibly have entirely in its possession or under its control. The proper specification of what desire is after at any stage in, say, its geistly career in the phenomenology tends to begin to reveal the depth of the sense in which what desire is after, the terms that render its object determinate, do not just illuminate or shine some kind of light on the beauty and the good of the unattained, but give the desiring subject a glimpse of the deep sense in which the unattained is, given the circumstances, given what there is to work with, given the nature of the desiring subject, given the motivational force propelling this being forward, unattainable. (coughs) And I've just uh, spent a lot of time figuring out how to narrate most (laughs) of the phenomenology. I'm just going to give you an example from a fairly early movement in it. Uh, The figure, the hero of this book is Geist. Tons of difficult scholarly questions about how on earth to interpret this figure. Okay. What Geist is after is knowledge. And what Geist wants initially is completely objective knowledge. It wants the knowledge to just come to it, right in, from whatever strikes it as the most enticing, beautiful, wonderful, splendid object there could be. So Geist sort of starts in its sensorium and wants all the vibrant play of sensuous qualities, all of that liveliness, to be its object. And it wants, it to, it wants to have that object without any subjective taint, without any sense that the subject is shaping, or filtering, or altering, or in any other way, getting its sloppy subjective hands over the beautiful object. It can't get this. It really, there is nothing that can be known in that. The thing that it winds up retreating to is that what it wants to get a grip on is whatever is here and now sounds like a bad slogan from 60s California. (laughs) But there's a sense in which little Geist is kind of stuck with a bad slogan from 60s California. Um, What it discovers is that it can't even isolate objects on this basis, much less know anything about their properties or qualities. Because at any point that it goes to isolate an object and attribute a quality to it, it's trafficking in the universal. And the universal is the thing that is alien to this flux. So 
it winds up through a series of kind of stunningly fabulous moves, um, having to pay attention more and more and more to the way in which it is implicated in its own understanding of the world. In its, it gets to have perceptions instead of just sensuality, actual perceptual field with objects and properties and stuff in it, although that takes a while. <coughs> Eventually it gets that. Um, but the very production and reception of the knowledge it can get from its perceptual field involves Geist's activity. Even when the way that Geist tries to cope with the sensory field is by supposing that there's these underlying qualities that account for the steadiness of things even though their colors change with the light, their positions change and so on relative to one another. It's thrown back to the point where it it realizes that even in looking for a thing in itself, down underneath all of a thing's sensory qualities, something that holds them all together and makes them all be qualities of one object, postulating an in itself is something that Geist does for Geist. The in itself is itself <coughs> relative to the subject that posits there must be an in itself down there holding the whole darn thing together. So it's stuck finding out that it's all over and all under and all through its knowledge and that it can't get its greedy little mind around anything without itself being implicated in the very process. So Geist figures that what Geist is going to have to do is investigate itself to figure out what this subject is that's all under and all over and all through what it can know. All through here, what it wants is knowledge, which for a little subject that is primarily motivated epistemically is going to be the highest good. Right? So... It's wor the working out of that aspect of the highest good in little-minded organism Geist that's at stake here. And at each stage, the thing that's at stake is whatever will count as highest given where little Geist has got itself to. That's why if you want to think about the career of desire for the highest things, this isn't a bad source text. Although... It's pretty um, alarming to read. In turning on itself, the first thing it sort of notices is that uh, the way in which it's been implicating everything all along shows it that the kind of knowledge it's seeking is only available to a little locus of self-consciousness. that falls out from the way that the subject keeps invading its knowledge and shaping and framing. So what happens when it makes itself 
its new topic of investigation, wanting to get to the bottom of this sense that this thing is implicated in everything and staining everything, is that it becomes both subject and object of its inquiry. Right? It's the thing it desires, and what it desires is itself. What can it get from this? Answer, nothing. It gets nothing. It gets this weird, dry tautology. It is what it is. In an indexical, I equals because it can't actually get back behind itself and see itself shaping its own knowledge. The thing back behind would be the thing it would now need to understand. And that the fugitive object of this desire <laughs> drives it into social life. Because if it can't give itself to itself, the hope is you, or you could give it to me. Uh, whereupon it almost immediately finds itself in a fight to the death with another, and this huge dynamic of domination and subordination that was very, very inspiring to a lot of uh, thinkers for a lot of years. But the moral of Geist's story, again and again and again, is that given the way it's trying to get hold of something, whatever its highest good is going to be, given where it is, and the set of terms that describe the sort of getting hold of it's capable of doing, and other aspects of what ends up becoming something more like cultural and historical context, the object of desire always remains elusive. There's some quality of unattainability right in the middle of desire for whatever is highest. Okay. <coughs> and here I think there might be actually a moment of Borrowing from okay, well, Aquinas picked it up, so the arms of playing grass. I was going to say differently, uh, a different sort of a thinker, patristic thinker. You can suppose that one of the things about human beings is that we were characterized by something called a restless heart that there was a sort of fundamental restlessness that was built into being a human being. And that although that the restlessness that might be crucial 
to being a human being seems to scream that it wants to come to rest somewhere. It may not be that there's a resting place for it. At least not necessarily in this life. And how that restlessness tries to direct itself, I take it, is toward higher good. Where a sense of what amounts to higher good shifts and changes and develops over time, but remains alarmingly realizable. One, oh well, okay, as near as I can tell, one of two things is true about this. Either it's alarmingly revisable, I'll discuss that in a moment, or it stays steady but can't actually comprehend its target entirely. I think we get a good picture of the restless heart out of Hegel. Now, I am not the person to judge whether the story Hegel weaves about desire is made of, in any sense, properly spun Aristotelian threads. Everyone we will get to hear tomorrow will be in a much better position to isolate and examine Aristotle's thought on this topic than I am. But there are aspects of the sort of stunningly gripping story of this fundamental restlessness that Hegel tells in his phenomenology that echo something of Aquinas' writing on the sources and determination of the movement of created beings. Now, as uh, Father Gregory joked about, there have been scholars who urge that Aquinas is far enough removed from Aristotle on this or that topic to fail to count as a real Aristotelian. There have been these disputes. But I think no one can deny Aquinas' debt to Aristotle. Whether they worry about the distance between the angelic doctor and his philosopher or celebrate that distance. Like, yay. What I want to emphasize in catching up this little piece of Hegel and hinting at something in Aquinas is the possibility that something that organizes, orders, and makes sense of various aspects of the lives of practically reasoning beings is a sort of higher good (coughs) that could turn out to be something that could never be fully realized in the life of a creature that is somehow at its core directed to higher goods. Hegel and Aquinas are, I mean, for Aquinas, of course, it's God and our relation to God that's at stake in all of this. And that's enough characterization of this object to suggest that we don't fully comprehend it. 
and our relation to it. Now, I mean, both Hegel and Aquinas are sort of, I think, towering and glowing figures. But even Kant, Immanuel Kant, um, also, I think, magnificent, but less likely to be celebrated uh, as such in Aristotelian circles, took it that the thing that practically reasoning beings as such wanted was not a thing that any practically reasoning being could attain all on its own. What the practically reasoning being wants is happiness in proportion to virtue. What the practically reasoning being wants is that each of us should be neither more nor less happy than she, he, or it, or something else is good. They. I guess we now say they. I just had to write a bunch of letters of reference that did not use any gendered pronouns, and we were supposed to just use they. So I'm having to break years of pedantry, freaking out over a singular that goes to a they. So forgive me. I'm still learning how to do this. Um, okay. And that our lives together should be arranged in such a way as to support happiness in proportion to virtue. This is what, ultimately, the practical, the practically reasoning beings most desire, according to Kant. Treating the kind of totality at issue in the specification of the ultimate end of the practically reasoning being as such is part of what led Kant to urge that practically reasoning beings operate in light of assumptions that they are free, that their souls are immortal, and that there is a God. Postulates that are supposed to frame the operations of practical reason without being contents for thought or aspiration. I think Stephen Engstrom has done the best and most detailed work on all of this. Um, the quick and dirty way to at least get to God goes kind of like this. We all know that nature is no respecter of virtue. The good and bad alike could be struck by lightning <laughs> or find themselves in the Lisbon earthquake or, 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 right? So if we're thinking that certain kinds of things shouldn't happen, the only way to make sense of that should is to point to something outside nature. That's one of the little arguments. Now, but we now have uh, several big names that seem to be insisting that something about the highest good that we can aim at is in some sense elusive. We can't fully understand it. We can't fully place ourselves in obvious relation to it. How it's supposed to be governing and ordering everything is a little opaque and still we look to it to try to explain various aspects of that order in our lives. 
I realize that even suggesting such a thing about desire and higher good runs contrary to something in the spirit of Anglophone philosophy of the variety that understands itself as operating in the analytic tradition. I mean, you're just not supposed to suppose that what orders our lives as practically reasoning and desiring beings is something that we cannot completely attain on our own or under our own steam, individually or collectively, and that cannot be built up bit by bit as we move through the world doing the best we can manage under the circumstances. But at this very abstract level of description, at least, some such thought is at work in Aquinas, in Kant, and in Hegel. Well, so what? They're dead. <laughs> We're trying to figure out life here. Um, okay. Why should we care, one way or the other, about the possibility that what lends fundamental order and direction in human life may involve some kind of higher or more global good that we can neither, that we cannot fully specify, we cannot fully comprehend, and we cannot fully attain under our own steam no matter how hard we try. Why should we care? After all, that kind of a suggestion says nothing about the many smaller scale, often fairly determinate things that we pursue in the course of a day or a week or a month or a year beyond the suggestion that some of these may be sought or pursued in light of an orientation to a global good that is not itself the sort of thing that can be understood in this way. You know, made actual sort of piecewise in going for this sort of thing and then that or in ordering all those pursuits or something. I mean, after all, the varieties of good we seek as expressive of our nature as human beings, those kinds of goods, it's like food, clothing, shelter, and the like, along with, say, health and wealth, love and friendship, many and various forms of security and, you know, optimism, are real goods that we can enjoy as we go along, if all goes well. We can recognize that blocking, impeding, or depriving someone of such things counts as harming that person. And these goods themselves mark out and help to govern and direct whole worthwhile regions of individual, collective, and even occasionally political activity that make possible support and sustain good human lives. It's not as though Hegel or Kant or Aquinas is going to deny any of that. So why should we care if whatever it is that sits above the many and wonderful worthwhile areas of human activity, the thing that gives these their points somehow, 
and their direction in some sense does not appear to be of the same order as the material it organizes. So what's organized are things like, um, I'm going to go to a conference, that's part of my professional life, yay, it's with all of you, better get an airplane ticket, oh look, they've got a place for me to stay, great, (laughs) and so on. All of that is ordered by a mixture of middle-level things having to do with what I, with my profession, with my colleagues, with my sense of why we do what we do, even maybe why it matters to try to think about these things, even maybe, I mean, yeah, say, maybe something about a highest possible good is somehow giving all of that a place in my life in some way I can't quite articulate, but why should that matter? It's not like it keeps me from giving a talk. I am not going to fully answer this question this afternoon. Though I'm very grateful to this conference for opening it for me. Instead, I'm going to try to suggest some reasons for thinking that we ought to at least take seriously the suggestion that the higher good that helps to lend order to the many and varied regions of worthwhile human activity is not a good that we can fully understand that the proper response to the sort of air of mystery carried by terms like desire, as people who aren't professional philosophers use it, and die Begierde, does not involve trying to domesticate and flatten them into the kinds of shapes that people with my sort of philosophical training and bent find comfortable. There are some things to be said on behalf of letting desire be a little alarming. I'm going to begin by giving a philosophical point in favor of allowing something necessarily elusive to stay alive at the heart of our work on goodness and desire. Then I will offer a suggestion that touches on a psychological observation, and I'll conclude with just a little theological gesture. I'll take the philosophical point from two contemporary neo-Aristotelian practical philosophers who develop different versions of of the point to different ends, Michael Thompson and Anselm Müller. Now, Thompson gets at this because he's interested in the relation between general items like practices or virtues and the individual actions that instance these more general items. On his account, the individual actions that are done from a virtue or as acts of promise-keeping or something like that instance, I'm sorry, find their grounding in the general term that unites the many and various acts that instance them. 
While there are many kinds of accounts that can be given of the point or good of the general item itself, a practice like promising, for example, the varied accounts of the point or sense or good of the practice bear a different relation to the practice than the relation the practice bears to the individual acts and instances. I will use the board for a moment. So for Thompson, you've got something like, you've got some practice or other general item here. Okay. Could be a virtue. Could be some practice or general item. And then you've got a very wide variety of little acts. Let's make a little acts. Little acts. that instance that general item. And the general item captures something about the singular source of the many little acts. Okay. So if you want to practice, you could use something like the institution of promising. If you want a related virtue, you could take, which is even better, you could take something like fidelity which certainly is going to show itself in the many little moments when I keep this or that promise or send a check to Bank of America or, or, or. Show up at my office hours. Show up at the extra office hours and so on. It also shows itself and animates all kinds of aspects of like my relation with my friends, my relation with my husband, in some sense, which it, has been under strain for the past several years, my relation to my country. In clear senses, my relation to my city. Um, it's easier for me to get behind Chicago at the moment than to get behind the nation state, but hey. Um, but my fidelity can show itself in a number of different acts that are very unlike each other but that are all alike instances of fidelity. And according to Thompson, the general item is what grounds the many acts that sort of leaf out and blossom out and grow from the general item. This relation is in a funny sense kind of empty. What these are is instances. Well, suppose we wanted to know about the good of the general item. Well, he says, there could be a lot of different kinds of accounts of that, a lot of different sorts of stories you could tell. Whatever the relation is between those stories and this is unlike the relation between the general item and the things that instance it. It's thicker. It has to be developed and argued for. A, a, an excellent philosopher can hold on to this picture and change her mind a number of times about the way you might go about 
trying to think about what made the general item worth worthwhile. Uh, his view is that um, part of what makes a position, let's say, rule utilitarianism seem to collapse and be utterly unstable is that it's as though the thing you say on behalf of the general item is exactly the same thing you say in trying to understand how the general item is related to the little individual acts. That's how come rule utilitarianism tends to collapse into act utilitarianism. It's because it's the same relation all the way through. So there's a fundamental philosophical instability in failing to notice that there's something very different going on at the higher level than is going on down here. In a very different mode, Anselm Mueller, especially in the recent papers having to do with, the formal, with formal and material goodness in action, um, and also with Aristotle and Aristotle scholarship, adopts a similar kind of model to the Thompson model in order to urge that whatever you say about what's up at the higher level that is somehow, in some way, expressed all the way through what's down below, it is not appropriately treated as being of the same kind as the stuff down below. So he will say that, for example, whatever's up here doesn't function as a premise in a practical syllogism in the way that some of the stuff down below might. One of the reasons that he's drawn to this kind of a view is that he thinks that ordinary people don't actually reason the same way when they're reflecting on this stuff as they do when they're engaged in the business of going about their lives. Neither philosopher pretends to explain the relation between the highest good and these other matters. Each is somehow insisting that whatever that relation is, uh, it marks a break of an important kind in the operation of practical reason. Now, it could be that the problem here is, is a holdover from something in Elizabeth Anselm, who was, of course, Anselm's teacher and Michael's inspiration, when, in her book Intention, she tries to talk about higher goods that might relate to particular chains of action, she uses the, I think, both a vague and unhelpful metaphor of distance. Something is at a distance from the immediate proceedings. 
something that is rendering the immediate proceeding, making them look choice-worthy or desirable, is operating at a distance. So it could be that both Mueller and Thompson are polluted by a thought about distance. <laughs> that could be. It's possible. But it's also possible that they've got a point. You could complain that all of this is based on concern over justification, which, if Katya is right, is not necessarily the right thing to be fixated upon in these topics and working with these topics. They are both concerned about reasons and justification and so on. So if you think that those are irrelevant to our topic, then you maybe don't need to take seriously these kinds of suggestions. But now I want to give just a little psychological observation in support of keeping something sort of fugitive and enticing in the middle of our sense about what's going on in desire for higher good. I do think that we actually do have a certain kind of fundamental restlessness that is seeking higher good. I think it may be part of our nature. <coughs> to that extent, I'm kind of a Thomist. Don't tell. <laughs> and that this is a very great blessing, even though I think it's also partly responsible for a lot of kinds of human suffering. Um, in a slightly jaded frame of mind that lasted for too many years and is not entirely abated even now, it seemed to me that very privileged people like us had stopped asking the old-fashioned ethical question, how should one live? They didn't ask that. Instead, they sort of surveyed the many and wondrous things in their world, things that they had devoted a lot of time and energy to putting into place for themselves, and said, is this it? I went through all that for this? It is, I think, an important question for the minority of persons who entertain it, I think. It can open its way for thinking about what sort of more they had hoped to find and why their efforts have turned out to be so disappointing. It's also a sort of personal and intimate place to make a reflective <coughs> pause that opens up questions about what they've been taking for granted and about what goes into making life worth living. The possibility of raising this question points to a certain indeterminacy in our sense of what makes for a good life, an indeterminacy that I think may be crucial for understanding how desire for very good lives operates in our self-understanding, holding open the possibility that I may be wrong about something in this central area, even when I draw on everything I have available to me, seems to me important. <coughs> Excuse me. At the very least, it tends to support a kind of humility 
that I think is amply warranted by stopping to consider exactly how wrong whole societies of people and whole modes of customary engagement and whole regimes of conscience seems to, seem to have been among us. Acknowledging the possibility of a mystery at the heart of desire for what is truly good is one way of allowing that we may have been misguided or at least of making sense of the kinds of big changes of heart that can be brought about when we find ourselves deeply disappointed by the things we have struggled to put into place. And it's the possibility of dramatic changes of heart that's in part held open by this idea that it isn't all exactly worked out. It's not even all necessarily going to take the sort of shape we expect it to take. And this little observation, little merely psychological, merely anecdotal, I'm a philosopher, we don't have data, we have anecdotes, leads me to the theological moment with which I'll close. For Aquinas, as for some other like-minded theologians, there's a very deep sense in which we have our source, in which we in, in, in which we have our source, in which the ways in which we're properly ordered and directed, all these things have to do with our relation to God. On such views, it's not exactly that our ultimate end is to lead good human lives. Our ultimate end is life with God on the understanding that this will not be complete in temporal life and cannot be had without grace. We can't have perfect or complete understanding of what we're made to direct ourselves toward. And such good as we manage in temporal affairs should not be mistaken for the highest good we might enjoy. In this sense, there's good reason for at least some theologically inclined neo-Aristotelians to deny that the restlessness of the human heart, which I take to be one of our best features, incidentally, is going to find its satisfaction and peace and even a gloriously fortunate, thought-through, and well-lived human life.
and this, the story he tells, or the argument he makes, is that it's a type of activity, and maybe it's a type of activity over our lives, so maybe a more a revised version of that is something that's like a pattern of activity. Um, some scholars think maybe it has to include the things you need to support that pattern of activity, or not. But at any rate, the highest good is, uh, is something of that, of that kind. But then, we might think that when he got going on this investigation, he said that the highest good was the going well of a human life. And it seems like any story about some particular thing, even something as vague as a pattern of activity, is not quite the same, doesn't seem to satisfy the description of the going well of a human life. Maybe there's even a kind of curious open question argument that says any particular proposal, when it's held up to the standard, what is the going well of a human life, is going to fall short. That's interesting. And I wonder if that philosophical gap, if it is a gap, corresponds to something, the thing you're putting your finger on about the nature of the highest good or higher goods in general. The desire for it. Yeah. There's certainly all kinds of echoes in that The neo-Aristotelian who taught me how to start thinking about Aristotle early in my third grade was pleasant. And I was young and still find pleasant in the And there's a sense in which the desire is built in, in Aquinas, is built into us, for the, in the rational beings, which are animals necessarily, in living beings. Um, in Cinderesis, um, which he treats as this natural habit, the natural habits are different from the acquired habits, because the acquired habits might drive out the liberation of the natural habits, spark it and keep it going. And the way in which they keep it going partly has to do with the impossibility of filling of fully filling out the picture um, of what's going to hold all the activities together in the right sort of way along with the lively sense that whatever is holding the things together is not going to be enough to prevent circumstances from shifting in such a way that some things cease to be possible for us. So it could be that some of the open-endedness in the way that Aquinas is trying to work this out there's some relation to the slight gap that you're seeing in Aristotle. But you're in a position to see gaps in Aristotle, and I'm in a position to listen to you <laughs> and learn that there might be some. Thank you. Yes. Can I get to that model? Oh, sure. Okay. So I'm just confused about something. So if we put up here a um, mammal, <laughs> and over here, dog. And over here, lucky. <laughs> and uh, lady, 
Now, okay, we, it, we think we know the relationship between these examples, and maybe between this and this. And also there's an argument you could make that, in fact, Fluffy direct, directly relates to going up. But what I don't understand is why, why is it the case that we look for inner meaning only at the thing on top and not on the thing in the bottom? Oh. Because, I, you know, any given dog, it's just as incomprehensible as the concept of mammal. Yeah, I think more comprehensible than that. I think, yeah. I think it's easier to, it's easier to say. No, but you know what I mean? But yeah, I think, no. No, I um, believe me, I'm sympathetic with this line. I was trying really hard for probably about 30 years to actually stick down in the most flat-footed way possible and to handle every interesting thing about the guise of the good thesis in terms of pretty low-level and flat-footed <coughs> patterns. Um, for really a lot of years. Um, but I ended up, on the occasion of being invited to give this talk, noticing that uh, a whole lot of philosophers who are way smarter than I will ever be, and way more perceptive than I will ever be, and who've taught me how to think about all kinds of things, including the flat-footed stuff that, where I feel comfortable, right? All seem to hold that something up here organizes, at least in human affairs, the things down below. And that, that relation can't be exactly the same as the relation between all the, thing, the logistics of giving a talk and the stuff of being a professional philosopher. Um, and I think that that's probably true. Um, so the reason I went to Weird Hegel um, was partly because, on my reading at least, he looks like the only philosopher I know it all well who's actually going right at why it's hard to explain the relation between higher good and what we do toward it. Um, also, he's really influenced by Aristotle and super friendly to Aristotle, and you can't read his logic and not see it all over. But um, that was... Um, <coughs> That's why I wound up giving this bizarre talk I just gave. But I'm very sympathetic to this. This is the stuff I think I know how to think about, right? Um, for a variety of different things. What I don't know how to think about exactly is this stuff. Um, and it, whatever's going on with mammal and dog has to cover mammal and human and mammal and cat and mammal and raccoon and mammal and meerkat and so on. And it's actually does not look as easy to chart as whatever's going on between, you know, dog and the instances of dog.
Does that make sense? Do Tegel, when he reached that point, the petulant give up? Oh, no. No. Are you kidding? He went on. Tegel, he has this kind of weird Teutonic confidence. It just sort of carried him forward in all kinds of ways. Um, I think it, wrongly in some respects, but... Um, Okay. Much, much less <laughs> trying God. <laughs> 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 
resistance. <laughs> but uh, but the, something about the striving for divinity and the desire to and the the indeterminate, unknowable more that Hegel is seeing as the essence. Of, of spiritual desire, the desire for a spiritual in a spiritual being is, I think, the place that he might go, um, and I, I'm happy with that place. Um, that place is just fine. Um, although I am at this point in my life willing to take on board a whole lot more of Aquinas than you can you can find there. I think legitimately. Perhaps one last question before we wait for our questions. Yes. Uh, um, the terms order and organize come up a lot in trying to talk about this. And obviously, that's harder when you're trying to talk about higher goods or high, the highest good. But I feel like it makes it, those kind of uses of words tend to make a lot more sense when I can point to a plurality that might structure. Yes. Um, when I just have one thing, I find order and organizing doesn't seem like the right sort of way to attach to that in, in its relationship to other things. So I wonder if you could say a bit about that, like uh, the difference between higher goods and highest goods and notions of ordering, as opposed to, say, giving the quality to acts or something like that, something that has a kind of simplicity to Part of what I was trying to do with terms like order and organize is to capture what I took to be an insight that I was finding in the wise, the people I was reading in hope of getting some wisdom on this question, which had to do with, which finds a flat-footed version in like, you know, some neo-Kantian who's like, no, you have to have a hierarchy and an architectonic. Otherwise, how do you know what to go for when there's conflict, right? Um, the deeper one doesn't even thinks the problem arises before you get to conflict. I think you don't have to have competing things trying to draw your attention in two different ways to feel like you need something else to even be attempting to... Uh, fully realize or actualize one good thing is usually plenty enough to make life get complicated way fast. Um, so, but the suggestion has been, what I'm trying to take from wise people, is the idea that something about a higher good lends a kind of harmony or helps to order or helps to show the point of, or the sense of, the other items, the lower, the mid-level items, and the sort of flat-footed ones where I'm at ease, right? Um, and I don't think it's obvious how 
And the fact that I don't think it's obvious how that works out is part of why I'm thinking that whatever form the desire for that <coughs> higher level thing is, takes, it's got to have some quality to it that's different from the kind of desire that is animating my pursuit of more garden variety goods. Does that make sense? Please join me in thanking